Hey there, I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver. And I'm Sean. Real name, no gimmicks. <laughs> we're the Verta guys. Checking out the dark side of DC is what we're doing. And we're here to recap and review Vertigo Comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. You notice that Preacher doesn't have a direct object, he just preaches. Sandman? Well, Sandman, he's a, he's a man of sand. Constantine blazes hell, but Preacher just preaches. Sandman. Hell, blazer, preacher. He's not a compound word. He should be disqualified right. on that basis. I guess it should be Sandman, Hellblazer, Swamp Thing. <laughs> the thing of the swamp. The thing, yeah, that lives in the swamp. Well, in any case, today we're going to look at Preacher. He lives another day um, <laughs> to be covered in our podcast yet again with issues number 11 and 12. All right. These issues are written by Garth Ennis. Pencils are by Steve Dillon. The inks are also by Steve Dillon, and the cover is by Glenn Fabry. Here on the cover of issue number 11, we've got the Duke sitting on an underwater coffin. Yeah, why does the Duke look so paunchy? What's that about? Well, John Wayne looks paunchy in a lot of his later movies, I mean. Okay, so that's just, the art is telling us that this is like, shootist era John Wayne. Yeah, I mean, we know actually that he first spoke to Jesse in the middle of McClintock. Mm-hmm. Which is definitely a late period. Yeah, he's an older fella in that film. Yeah, in any case, this is a very somber image. Yeah, this might be the most weak sauce cover we've had yet. Don't like it? I it, I don't dislike it particularly. I mean, Glenn Fabry's covers are one of the best things about this series. But, but this is not my favorite one. I guess I will say one thing, which is that usually you can't really get a look at the Duke's face. But in this cover, you can see most of his face, and he's not John Wayne. Yeah, that's true. That's that's definitely a, an issue. All right, so to briefly recap what had happened in Preacher, we found oh, out... must we? <laughs> <laughs> None of it's good. <laughs> we, uh... So we had found out that Jesse was raised by his uh, psycho uber-Christian redneck family in Angelville, Louisiana. And despite him having gotten away from them at the beginning of the series, well, back when he became Preacher in Anvil, right... They captured him, and then they killed Tulip. Yeah, he told her the whole story of his life and childhood, and why he's so fucked up over the, the one night that they had together, tied to chairs together in the basement of the Angelville compound, and then come the first rays of dawn, they shot her in the head, as they had promised to do. And, you know, that's a connection that I didn't make until now, but that sort of resembles Sandman, issue number nine, in that that is also a story that is told from sundown to sunup. Right, right. Tales in the Sand, as we learn the story of Sandman's first love, Nada. Yeah, that's... We're, we're the Verta guys, and we're, we're pointing out all the intertextuality for you. <laughs> In these Vertigo comics. So, we open here on Jesse looking totally just broken. Yeah, and seriously shell-shocked Jesse. Yeah, and Grandma looking quite smug as she has her hand on his shoulder and sort of evilly reassures him. And she's got a plan here that now that they have Jesse in their power, they can use the power of the Word of God, which he has due to being possessed by... A renegade half-angel, half-demon baby named Genesis. 
to restore the Langell family to glory. Yeah, she's looking forward to, uh, well, I, I, I was about to say she's looking forward to being able to use the word of God for her own purposes, but I, I think really she thinks that we're squared away here. Um, she's looking forward to being able to die. Yeah, and that's going to come back in just a minute here. And there's an effective pan here as the camera is backing up with each panel until we get an overhead shot of Grandma wheeling away from Jesse. And that's when we see the bloodstain next to Tulip's knocked-over chair and the trail of blood leading right out of the room where they have dragged her body away. Yeah, this is just a little thing, but I, I thought it was really smart how the colorist drew the the blood stain and the blood trail as being pure black. I think I think a red blood stain would have made the whole thing look a little a little silly, for mm, lack of a better okay. word. Maybe that shows that some time has passed, or maybe it's just showing contrast. So Grandma goes outside of the room in her wheelchair. And TC asks her if he should get the coffin ready. Now, as we found out in our last Preacher episode, their habit, whenever Jesse does something particularly against their wishes... Mostly swearing. Yeah. (laughs) Is to stick him in a coffin at the bottom of the lake. Right, right. And that's what we saw on the cover as well. But Grandma says this time it won't be necessary. Instead, she asks him to get a sheet for Tulip's body and asks him to bring the body to her bedroom and leave it alone. And on Jody's questioning, she says, Just look at him. He's beaten. He's lost. The last spark of will and wickedness in him is gone forever. And the only thing that could have kept him from becoming mine again is lying over there on the floor. Jody replies that they have thought he was beat a couple of times before. But this time is different, she says. This time he has nothing to run to. Not even Genesis, as far as Jesse knows, because the word isn't working. Yeah, and at this point she tells Jody it'll never work on us. Part of the deal she made with God, I suppose. Yes, or so she believes. And she says, as you had brought up a moment ago, I'm glad this is over. I know I've outlived my three score and ten just to ensure the future of this grand old place. It'll be a relief to rest at last, Jody. And on this, Jody hesitates. He has a beat here, an empty speech bubble, before he says, Yes, ma'am. Actually, he says, Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) There's clearly something that he's not quite satisfied with in the way that they've handled the situation and the way that it looks going forward. Meanwhile... Wrapped in a sheet in the bedroom, Tulip opens her eyes. Right, we have Tulip in the dark here, and then she wakes up screaming, Jesus fucking Jesus Christ! She examines her head, sees no trace of blood, and all of a sudden is caused to scream again by the appearance of a very bright light. Right, an intense light that's being cast from inside the room. And we'll come back to that in a little minute. But right now, Jesse is in another room where he gets a visit from TC, who is pretty glad that he's been beaten down, basically. And then TC goes to talk to Jody. Yeah, and TC is having a good day, but Jody is depressed. Hey, you just got to shoot a person in the head, Jody. Why so glum? 
God damn it, TC. That old gal ain't shown me a tenth the kindness she has him over the years, and I'm ready to fucking die for her. Little bastard's got a mean, ungrateful streak a half mile wide. That's why I never did take to him, you know? I can't abide them that won't stand by their own. Well, she never shot any of your girlfriends in the face. So... <laughs> Maybe that's a kindness. That's a kind of sticking by your own? To give a shit when your girlfriend gets shot? Yeah, well, that's another good point. But I was just thinking about his idea that Grandma has shown Jesse so much kindness, and obviously no reasonable person has any reason to see it that way. Yeah. But it's important to note here that as he says that, Jesse is hearing it through the door. Yeah. And John Wayne tells him that the bastard sort of got himself a point. See, the Duke thinks that Jesse hasn't really done well by him. For example, the whole time he was telling his story, he never mentioned the Duke. Jesse tries to explain that the Duke is a little hard to talk about. He's not sure of the details himself. It's not the fact that they have conversations that bother him so much as the details. John Wayne died in 1979, but the Duke first spoke to Jesse four years earlier, when his father was shot. Also, Jesse's the only one who can see him, and except for one occasion, he's never really told Jesse anything that he didn't already know. Right, so he could almost be a voice in Jesse's head, but remember back in issue number one, he told him about the Saint of Killers, which Jesse had no way of knowing. Right, and Jesse does point that out here. Now the Duke's response to that is that he thought Jesse's back was against the wall, never figured it was time for damn fool questions. I really like this particular speech bubble just because you can hear it in John Wayne's voice so well. The damn fool questions line? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the whole thing. And now we get a flashback to Jesse's first time in the coffin and how John Wayne was standing outside the coffin to talk him through it. Right, this is something we didn't see before as he was telling the story that the Duke was with him the whole time. Telling him it was normal to be scared, but that he had two things going for him. You got what your daddy said the night before they shot him. And you got me here for you, just like I told you. Now, this is not something that we saw, but it seems that Jesse's conversation with the Duke has been overheard because we cut to the next page and Grandma, TC, and Jody are talking about the fact that they've overheard him talking to himself. Right, Jody and Grandma worry a little bit that Jesse may be too broken at last, but she says even a madman can still father children. Grandma decides they should give him a day to get over it and tells TC to look in on him at sunset. And then she asks Jody a question. When you left the body of the whore in my bedroom, do you happen to notice anyone else there? Now, this seems like Grandma trying to make sure that she's the only one who can see God. Right, right. The only one that God has chosen to appear to. Right, well, she has an ulterior motive for making sure that Jody and TC don't look in on the body. TC cannot be left alone with basically anything. <laughs> right. Farm animals, farm equipment. <laughs> yeah. But we also know from the previous issues that Grandma has been talking to God up in her bedroom. Right, so she may... I don't think she has any idea that God is going to bring Tulip back to life, but... Spoiler warning! <laughs> oh, I guess that happened a minute ago. <laughs> yeah, which we're going to quickly find out is what took place. But she does seem 
to have some inkling that that God is going to be there in the room. He did say he wanted to look at the body. That's right. That's right. He gave that order. So we find Tulip in the room with the presence of God. And he asks why she won't look at him. And she says it's because she's afraid she's dead. If she sees God, that will confirm she's dead. You were shot through the head. You died instantly. But I am with you. I am the resurrection and the life. And in me, you will live again. I love you. And here we get a full page of Tulip looking upon the glory of God. Yeah, and the art here is very well done. He, he obviously looks luminous and superhumanly perfect and sort of eccentric. Yeah, as well, we have a nice reaction shot on the next page of Tulip taking that in. And when she looks around, she realizes that she's definitely not in heaven. I told you, child, I am the resurrection. So he goes on to tell her that his only desire is for her to live and for her to love him. But he also wants Jesse to love him. And in so doing, to stop questioning and give up his quest. And he adds that he has restored Jesse's power over Grandma and her cohorts, that they are evil and are subject to Jesse's judgment. Both of you may go in peace. Now, I have dealt more than fairly with him, Tulip. His love and trust are but a little price to ask. What do you think he'd say to me, hmm? And after a pause, Tulip says, I think he'd say, cut the shit. Yeah, she can tell that he's hiding something here. Yes, and we will resume that conversation in a minute. But there's another one going on between Jesse and the Duke. As the Duke asks, what happened to the little cowboy who'd never cry again? You quit. It's a shame neither of us does a better John Wayne impression. But, <laughs> but uh, again... What can you do? <laughs> you forgot the things I told you'd get you through, didn't you? And it ain't like it's the first time, neither. Or did you forget that as well? And he reminds Jesse of what he said the day that Jesse gave in to Grandma and became a minister. An offensive epithet for a gay man. Right. <laughs> Ghost John Wayne isn't the most progressive fella. Nor apparently a ghost, since he started showing up. You know, when John Wayne was alive? While John yeah. Wayne was still alive. The Duke walked out on Jesse that day, but he says he didn't go far. No, he was always watching. And we have a flashback here of Jesse as minister in Anvil, getting drunk on Jack Daniels and... Or is his favorite Jim Beam? I think that's a Jack Daniels label. No, it's, it's Jack Daniels. I remember very clearly, he says... After a year of ministering to the folks in Anvil, he was putting away a bottle of JD a night. Right, so here he's putting away a bottle of JD and uh, throws it, smashing it against the cross in his church. Anytime Jesse showed a spark, the Duke says, you just drowned it. Yeah, this has been alluded to earlier in the series. When John Wayne comes back to Jesse at the beginning of the series... Jesse kind of says that he hasn't heard from him in a while. And John Wayne says that, you know, a man can change the way he thinks about his partner. So he had given up on him before and, and then came back after the way he handled the whole Genesis and Saint Killer's situation. Right, and that's why Jesse says here, that's why he could hardly believe it when the Duke came back, because he had walked out on him. But the Duke... Remains disgusted. Hell, some good it did me. 
you're getting ready to throw it all away again. Yeah, that's really the best I can do. Sorry, listeners. (laughs) He thinks that Jesse shouldn't let them beat him, but Jesse sort of disagrees. Grandma's fucking evil incarnate as far as I can see, and every time I try and fight her, someone close to me dies. That's quitting talk! And he reminds Jesse once more of the words his father said right before he died. Said you gotta be one of the good guys. Because there's way too many of the bad. You're right. I let him beat me. I quit on my dad and I quit on you. I don't know why you didn't just do the same. Darn it, Pilgrim. It's because we're partners. So, here we get a flashback. This is Jesse and Tulip in Monument Valley. In a stolen car, probably. (laughs) Yeah. And they're having sex, and then he says, We gotta go stargazing more often. Which I I thought was cute. (laughs) Right, and this is the day before they hit Phoenix. And Tulip talks about how she's amazed by Jesse, how he's so gorgeous she has to touch him to believe he's real. Christ, I think I'd grow old overnight if I lost you. He replies, I ain't going anywhere, baby. I love you. Till the end of the world. And a voice cracks into Jesse's flashback, waking him up. Apparently he slept for a little while, and it's TC. Yep, and TC's holding the shotgun. Just sort of casually pointing it at Jesse. Yeah, it looks like he's shaking him awake with the barrel. By, by prodding him with the barrel of it. Yeah, gun safety issues. Probably doesn't know about trigger discipline either. <laughs> yeah. I imagine this gun is so old it doesn't even have a safety. Probably. Uh, a safety catch. <laughs> and Jesse says, point that fucking thing somewhere else, will you? Yeah, and it's never really explained why he attempts to use the word here. But when he says point that thing somewhere else, the text is in red and TC cannot help but obey. And that's when Jesse realizes that his power has returned. Well, well, well. Yeah, and he takes brutal revenge against TC and has fun doing it. Yeah, there's a whole page here of him sucker punching TC and then smashing his head into the ground. Yeah, repeatedly. He lights himself a cigarette. He says, no more quitting. He's gonna stamp Grandma and Jody into the shit they came from, then find God. And when I find him, he better have a fucking good excuse. Glad to hear it, Pilgrim. Because there's a little girl lying dead out there that needs a vengeance. You can talk the talk. Now let's see you walk the walk. And as Jesse strolls out of the bedroom, you got it. Yeah. That's three quarters of a page for that panel of Jesse striding out looking all badass. He's got his powers back and he's ready, if not eager, to face Grandma and Jody. Yeah, and he's got his iconic costume as well. I guess he's been wearing it the whole time. Yeah. But yeah, this is a good, very uh, iconic shot of the character. So the Duke thinks that Tulip is still dead, or he's lying. There are apparently limits to his knowledge, unless he's just trying to motivate Jesse. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question of how absolute the Duke's knowledge is. He also can't just tell Jesse where God is. Right, that's true. So did you think it was a a weird decision to have this issue focus on John Wayne and his relationship with Jesse? 
No, I don't think so. The Duke is a part of the series mythology, and I'm hoping that we're going to find out a little more about why this is a thing that happens. I think that we needed to have an issue, and it, in a way it's good that they took the time, even though it's a really decompressed story. It's good to have an issue just of Jesse getting over the traumas that he's been through and deciding to fight back. Yeah, I think that, yeah, obviously that needed to happen, him getting through the shock. And the Duke character is a very effective way for the series to do that. It's just that the source of all this trauma is that Tulip was just killed in front of him. And instead of having a lot of focus on his relationship with her, it's all about his relationship with this other character. That's somewhat true, although we also did get a flashback to his happiest time with Tulip. One of the things that I think is important about this story is that he isn't able to find out that Tulip is back, and that gives him the motivation to fight back. He's got to overcome this in the depth of his darkest possible ebb. He's got to overcome this on his own strength. Yeah, and she doesn't reveal herself at an inopportune moment, you know, causing... Jesse to be distracted and, like, you know, the bad guys to, to have a better chance. You no. Know, that would be an easy... That would be an easy manipulation for the story to make, and they don't do that. It's interesting, though. You pointed out... You pointed out that we do see that, that one very happy memory between Jesse and Tulip, and it's interesting that that's a memory that John Wayne is connected to as well, because it's in Monument Valley, which was the site where so many of his, you know, most famous movies were shot. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. The I know Duke. that we see Monument Valley in Stagecoach. I think The Searchers. I'm not remembering any others off the top of my head. But but yeah, it's a very like John Wayne-associated landscape. And that's, I'm sure that was intentional. That's a very good point. At the same time, it's a moment of Jesse not giving up on Tulip, even though he believes he's dead. He loves her until the end of the world, and he's going to get revenge. Yep, and this is all setting us up for the... Very dramatic final issue of the All in the Family story arc. Right, so we open Preacher number 12 until the end of the world. With another Glenn Fabry cover, this one shows Grandma on a trail of fire rocketing out of the roof of Angelville. <laughs> yeah, and uh, she looks like she's sort of having sinister fun. <laughs> <laughs> she looks like she's having a great time, somehow. Yeah, but when we actually see, as often happens with the Glenn Fabry covers, when we actually see the scene that this is inspired by, it's sort of recontextualized. You know, we, there's that famous Glenn Fabry image of Jesse smiling over the burning church, and he wasn't enjoying that either. No, 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 that's true. And like many Glenn Fabry covers, this is extremely detailed, almost grotesquely real, combined with kind of a cartoonish scenario. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Oh, and do you notice there, we can sort of see down in the corner the creek that they put the coffin in? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so first page of the issue picks up the conversation between Tulip and God from the previous issue, and she says, I'm not buying your bullshit. Right, he's trying to tell her that he's the one true God, and she believes him, but she says, what I want to know is, why do you have to be so fucking cruel about it? Having me killed just to bring me back to life? Leaving Jesse at the mercy of his bitch of a grandmother? And why tell me instead of him? And God, in his defense, tries to explain that he works in mysterious ways. 
Right, but she says that's what she used to hear in Sunday school, and she's never been one for blind faith. She has her own theory. Although he arranged all of this, God has carefully avoided meeting Jesse face to face. Yeah, she thinks he's scared. God replies, that is quite enough. I am leaving. You go to Jesse Custer, and you tell him this has been a warning. You tell him that unless he forgets this ridiculous attempt to hunt me down, things will be much worse next time. I am a loving god, Tulip, but don't push it. Right, so that's a really interesting view of God, the idea that he arranged for Tulip's death so he could resurrect her, so that he could have so that he could have done Jesse a favor, so that he could get a couple of points with Jesse, essentially. Yeah, God is a really devious character in this comic. But I am a loving God, Tulip, but don't push it is is one of I think <laughs> The most memorable lines he gets over the course of the series. Yeah, that's a good line. And there's an interesting kind of tie-in here to one of the very basic, like, problem of evil questions, as God is apparently willing to intervene on somebody's behalf, but if he is omnipotent, is he not responsible for the problem in the first place? Right. So, meanwhile, picking up right where he left off in the last issue, Jesse is about to solve some less philosophical problems. And he's going to do it with violence. He comes out the door of the house. He sees Jody and a bunch of gunmen standing around the burning crosses in the Angelville yard. I owe you pissant, white trash, cocksucking sons of bitches all the hurt in this fucking world. So, who wants to get his ass kicked first? And Jody looks at him and grins. He's having sort of a complicated reaction. It seems like... He is legitimately glad to see Jesse on his feet and ready to kick some ass, even though I think Jody is pretty confident he's going to win the fight. Yeah, well, that's sort of the story of their relationship. He always wants Jesse to quit whining and, you know, be tough and stick up for himself. But part of the reason why he likes it is it means he gets to slap him back down. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in the house, Grandma comes into her room looking for Tulip's body. Where is that skinny little slut's corpse? (laughs) Every day issues of Psycho Grandmother. (laughs) Yeah. You misplace household objects. Tulip gets the drop on her and kicks her wheelchair over. And then locks her in the bedroom. Now, the interesting thing about this page is that Grandma doesn't seem that surprised to see Tulip alive. That's true. She was definitely looking for a corpse. Yeah, but... She's more surprised by Tulip's insolence than by her animation. That's true. She manages to claw her way to the window where she watches the events going on outside. Now, Jesse might be full of piss and vinegar, but he knows he's not going to take on like five guys with guns all by himself. Just through ass-kicking determination. So he decides to even the odds a little bit. He says, Burn, you fuckers! And every man standing there catches fire. Only Jody, among them, retains the presence of mind to go running and dive into a trough of water. Yeah, now this might be the only time, at least it's the only time that comes to mind, that we see Jesse use his powers this way to cause something impossible to happen. Well, he did order Psy to die back in New York, and that took immediate effect. Yeah, That's true, but we could almost pseudo-scientifically explain that one away. 
you know, like can a can a person will themselves to to death? Could he just stop his heart, stop his brain, and just concede to the order to die? Like death is a purely psychosomatic symptom. Whereas these guys actually catch fire. Right. He ordered someone to be able to fly. Could they? Well, he he didn't make Hugo Root able to fuck himself. No, that's absolutely true. <laughs> Jesse seems not to have noticed that Jody successfully doused himself and is fine. He sees some of the other men burned to death and lights a cigarette callously and says, Okay, you're next, Grandma. And from behind him, somehow, Jody says, The fuck she is. Man, the art is good on this page. I mean, yeah, it's Steve fucking Dylan. One of my favorite comic book artists of all time. The art's good on every page, but but goddamn, I love this shit. This is a lovely frame. Jesse framed in the panel with the burning cross and Jody behind him, covered with scorch marks, but packing a piece and ready for a fight. I could tell you to shove that thing up your ass, Jody, and you'd do it. But you ain't gonna. No. Hope for you yet, boy. Jody tosses the gun aside, and they go fisticuffs. Jody starts to call Jesse a sissy, but Jesse reveals that he just beat TC's brains out, and Jody reacts with a stone face. And Jesse swings. He takes an early lead in this fight with a left, followed by a right, followed by a punch straight to the solar plexus. Here we have about two pages of really... Really excellently done, really brutal violence. Just a down-and-dirty fight scene. Yeah, Jesse is definitely the early favorite in this battle. Yeah. And Jody repeatedly tries to get a sentence off. I'm... I'm... Getting old? Jesse interjects. Back in the house, we find Tulip, as she finds a bloody mess with a blood trail leading away and an abandoned shotgun. She picks up the gun and follows the blood trail. This is the gun that TC dropped a moment ago. Right. TC, it seems, is still alive, but he's scared he's feeling his brains drip down his forehead. As Tulip advances on him with the shotgun, she says, You remember when we first met, TC? Do you remember what you called me? Well, the coos does have a name. It's Tulip. And with that, she levels the shotgun at Jody, and we cut away just in time to see Jody and Jesse hearing the shotgun blast. There's also another little scene in there where Grandma is pounding ineffectually on the door, demanding to be let out, and suddenly notices that smoke is pouring up through the cracks in the floor below her. The gentleman that Jesse set afire a couple of pages ago apparently lit the house before they died. Indeed. So when Jody and Jesse hear the shotgun blast, it distracts Jesse just long enough for Jody to get a surprise attack in, and he sends Jesse reeling through the fence. Yeah, and that leads to an odd little moment of physical comedy here as Jesse picks up a board that snapped off the fence, cracks it across Jody's face, and it just sits there stuck to his face. Yeah. He pulls it out, and there's two bloody nails matching two puncture wounds in his cheeks. 
Kind of different, he comments. Yeah, this moment suddenly turns horrifying as we realize why the board stuck to his face. And then he kicks Jesse to the ground, breaks two of his fingers, and breaks his nose with a headbutt. Grandma jumps in. Kill him, Jody! He's burnt my beautiful house down. He's finished this family. He's no kin of mine. Kill him! Jody taunts Jesse that he brought this on himself, always having to go his own way. You'd listen to me, we could have made something out of you. Fucking killer, like you, you prick. Aw oh, shit, I'm a killer. Sure, I'm glad you've been paying attention. Jody goes on to taunt Jesse about shooting his father, causing Jesse to swing wild with a punch. And he takes the opportunity and grabs his arm and puts him in the same lock he had him in before with his arm twisted behind his back. Right, the same arm lock we saw a couple of issues ago when they first fought when Jesse was 15. Jody says that Jesse got his softness from his father. If it had been up to Jody, Jesse would have got his ass kicked regular. So everything they did to him was to toughen him up. And that's basically the idea of toxic masculinity in a nutshell. <laughs> right. Now I'm going to kill you like your grandma says to, you little cocksucker. But you listen good. You don't tell me what I want to hear and I'm going to do it slow. You're up against a brick fucking wall here, boy. You're going to fold up against it too like I seen you do before. Say what you got to say. Ah! Say it like last time. So he's trying to get him to say uncle, which we saw him do the last time he was in this arm lock. And Jesse opens his mouth and takes a big old bite out of Jody's arm. <laughs> He kicks him to the ground, stomps on his back, and then he takes a breather a little space away while Jody, beaten on the ground, says, Proud of you, boy. Jesse doesn't like that. He jumps on top of him, wraps his hands around his throat, and tells him to fucking die. Yeah, man, so Jody is terrifying, and even as he loses... He feels that because Jesse is tough enough to take him, he's won. So, you're saying that in a way there's kind of no beating Jody? As long as you're falling into his game? Yeah, I mean, he wants Jesse to be as tough and as callous as he is. And I guess the way that Jody... Fuck me, why'd they give them both the same name? <laughs> I guess the way that Jesse wins is by being a better man than he is. But just beating him in a fight doesn't give him the moral victory that he deserves. Yeah, but Jesse remains a, a decent human being, not a total piece of shit. So there's some comfort in that. Now, as Jesse is strangling Jody to death, Grandma is watching the flames creep closer and closer to her oxygen tank. Right, she screams that she will get even with Jesse. Yeah, he's going to get punishment for this. I'll be waiting for you in hell. The oxygen tank ignites, the room explodes, and Grandma is blasted out the window and into the sky. Burn, you fucking witch burn. Yeah! Jesse regards the burning house, which still has a burning cross on the lawn. This is a lovely and very cinematic panel as Jesse watches the house burn with Jody's body at his feet. He reaches into Jody's pocket and retrieves the fuck communism lighter. His father's lighter that Jody had stolen all those years ago. He uses it to light his third cigarette of the issue 
and says, Fuck you, Grandma. Fuck you and all your monsters. As he watches Angelville burn, somebody comes up behind him. It's Tulip. What did they do to you? She asks when she sees how badly beaten up he is. He's not very upset about it, though. Ain't nothing. Dear Lord Jesus, don't let me be dreaming. You're you're just never going to believe. I mean, I don't care how. I don't give a good goddamn. And then they kiss with the fire in the background. And this is another one of those times where we get the title page on the last page. Until the end of the world. And so they're back together. Yeah, Tulip didn't quite manage to tell him the message from God, which is a good thing, because it would have been kind of redundant for us to hear it again. Yeah, distracting at this point in the story. They are back, they are together, they beat their past. Yeah, this is a ridiculously satisfying issue after the horror of the first three issues of this story arc. By all means. Now, one thing... One little issue that I had with this story. Does it seem to you like the reason that Jesse abandoned Tulip and Phoenix when we finally find out what it is, is a little too easy? Particularly in terms of getting them back together at the end of this story arc. She's been demanding to know what his reasoning was, and his reason turns out to be the best reason there is. If I don't leave you, somebody will shoot you. (laughs) Well, no, I think it's earned because... In a way, all of that energy that the book put into establishing what his childhood is like and why he's so afraid of Angelville and why he hates to talk about his past so much and like how absolutely ruthless his family is in getting him to do what they say, all of that stuff is the answer to the question of why he left her. And so it's it not just Jody's imminent threat. If we didn't have the full effect of three issues of Jesse being beaten down by Angelville over and over again, we couldn't really understand why it was the only choice he could make. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not just like some anonymous hoodlum came up and put a gun to my head and, you know, took me away. That would be too easy. But instead, we get this whole epic family melodrama that is satisfying mm-hmm. and... And does explain not only why he did it, but why he's so reticent to talk about it. And it does so in a way okay. that, it, you know, it's, it, it doesn't disappoint. You know, it has a big, big buildup, and it just gets bigger. It rises to the occasion. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's sort of the, the omnipresent trope where they weren't able to communicate about the thing until it actually was upon them. All the weeks that they've been traveling since Anvil, he couldn't go ahead and just tell her what happened until they were captured by Grandma and her forces. But as I mentioned in the first half, if they didn't actually have to confront this, it wouldn't be nearly as strong a story. Yeah. And what we get almost more than the opening story arc of Preacher is the origin story of Jesse Custer. It's not how he got his powers, but... It's how he came to be. And this is just such a magnificent, well-crafted, you know, it's an intricate story with a lot of moving parts. And they all work together and and they all pay off. And it's just absolutely one of the most fantastic storylines in the history of this comic book 
And maybe all comic books. <laughs> it's real good. Now, we didn't get any real follow-up on Billy Bob. Now, Billy Bob is a character who showed up in the last half of the story. He was Jesse's best friend as a child. He was killed by TC in basically a random act of violence just because Angelville is that shitty. And the, the only real upshot of it was that Jesse realizes that he's beaten one more time. Well, Billy Bob is the case study in why he believes that people he cares about can be and will be killed if they cross Grandma. That's uh, the reason he believes it when Jody says he'll kill Tulip in Phoenix. Right, exactly. It makes it so that Tulip's death is not an isolated incident, but part of the entire pattern of abuse that Grandma and Jody have been laying on him all these years. Right, right. The first instance of Jesse feeling that Angelville is inescapable, unbeatable. As well, it gave him the impetus to try to leave the first time. Indeed. So, were you not as thrilled with this story arc as I was, or do you think it, it lives up to all the hype I give it? Well, you know, the first time I read it, I was totally enthralled with the story of Jesse's past and just the levels and levels of tragedy that he has to go through. And then after I had read it, I kind of stepped back and I said, sadness is not better than any other emotion. <laughs> and now having read it for the third time, in preparation for this episode, I think it's very well crafted and I think it's a story that produces a really unique and really compelling character in Jesse. And I think the confrontation at the end is super satisfying. I don't think Jesse is the only compelling character to come out of this, too. I, I also think that, that Jody and Grandma are both like very memorable and unique villainous creations. Mm -hmm. And I think we should not ignore that Tulip had a moment there to get back some of her agency and kick some ass as well. Yeah, and it A couple is... of good moments, in fact, standing up to God and taking out TC. Yeah, her revenge on TC is one thing that's sort of, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a stereotypical tough chick scene that you might see in, like, a 90s action movie. But her refusing to be cowed by the Almighty after <laughs> he's just arranged her death and brought her back from the grave is where she really shows a lot of salt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that gives her... She, every bit as much as Jesse earns her place on this quest to find God and resolve his forsaken responsibilities. Right. And in addition to everything it does to fill in the blanks in Jesse's past, these issues also set us up real well for what's going to happen for the rest of the series. One thing about this story arc is that Cassidy, one of the most essential ingredients of the the brew that is Preacher, yeah. is entirely absent. Yeah, partially I think that's because Jesse and Tulip had to go through hell and he's just too powerful. He would throw too much of a wrench into this story. Yeah, and he's also, he's not as strong as they are. I don't mean as a character, I mean like as a person. Uh, I mean, he's got physical strength, but he doesn't have the kind of mental toughness that they have. He wouldn't be able to 
to handle it. <laughs> he wouldn't be able to stand up against the levels of trauma and oppression that this story represents. Well, I say that, but he does have his own traumatic experience coming up. Yes. And as well, this story arc provides a different foil for Jesse in terms of concepts of masculinity. That is Jody. Cassidy represents that under ordinary circumstances. Here it's cast in a directly villainous role. Yeah, that's interesting. It's an interesting way to put it. Final thoughts? Well, we'll be seeing Cassidy again in our next Preacher episode as we head to California and meet Jesus de Sade. But first, join us next week as Morpheus keeps his prior engagement with Men of Good Fortune. Hey, if you like our show, check us out at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter at Vertiguys or by vertiguys at gmail.com. Yeah, uh, feel free to send us an email if you want to ask us any questions or just chat with us about these comic books that we're discussing. We'd love to hear from you. Also, if you wanted to subscribe to us on iTunes or write us a review there, that would be terrific as well. You're lovely people and we like hearing from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.